Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, there were Richard Pay and David Pearson. It was about winning. It was about being first. It was about crossing under that checkered flag before anyone else. And somehow it seemed to come down to the two of them, especially on the speedways. Fans could look up with 25, 30 laps to go. And there they were, first and second, planning strategies, testing their cars, seeing what they had left, finding that perfect time to make their move. Even though they had 305 Cup Series wins and 10 championships between them, they knew each other like cover to cover. There were no more secrets to unveil. Hundreds of battles they had proven. Petty, the tall, lanky farm boy from Level Cross, North Carolina, spent their formative years raising tomatoes and cotton and corn and riding bicycles and roaming the woods with cousin and future crew chief Dale Inman. The two young boys worked on Richard's dad's Oldsmobiles in Plymouth, those of three-time NASCAR champion Lee Petty, while in high school as Richard played sports, including quarterbacking for the Randleman High School Tigers football team. Richard's first NASCAR start came on July 18, 1958 at Toronto, Canada. It was the first of 1,184 NASCAR starts that came to an end on November 5th. 1992 at Atlanta Motor Speedway. The inaugural 2010 NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee still sports those trademark sunglasses and the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots and jeans as he's done since the early 1980s. That wide ear-to-ear grin is still there that he's so famous for. Betty won Cup Series titles in 1964, 67, 71, 1972, 74, 75, and 1979. Oh, and he also had 200 career Cup Series victories, his last coming in the 1984 Firecracker 400 at Daytona with President Ronald Reagan in attendance. That record will most likely never be broken. Pearson, a native of Spartanburg, South Carolina, climbed an oak tree to see his first stock car race as a child at the Spartanburg Fairgrounds Raceway. He worked with his brother in a car repair shop just long enough to buy his first race car, a 1940 little car built just for dirt tracks. He began winning races and attracted the attention of Joe Littlejohn, a racer at the Daytona Beach Road Course in 1949 and 1950, and he became a promoter at a half-mile track at the, called the Piedmont Interstate Fairgrounds Raceway at Spartanburg starting in 1939 until the track's final NASCAR Grand National Race in 1966. In part, through Little John's encouragement, Pearson was given a ride by team owner John Mason and a Pontiac prepared by legendary chief mechanic 
Ray Fox in 1961, the year that Pearson won the World 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway, driving on only three wheels. Pearson went on to win three NASCAR Cup Series championships, uh, coming in 1966 for team member Cotton Owens, and again in 1968-69 for Holman Moody's Ford factory race operation based in Charlotte. Throughout his 26 years, Pearson started 574 Cup Series races and collected 105 victories. Then on April 16, 1972, he joined Team Miller Glenn Wood at Darlington Raceway, a track where he won 10 times in the Cup Series, putting aside the grueling full schedules of races for select super speedway events where he excelled best. And all told, Pearson won 43 Cup Series races for the Wood Brothers. That included Glenn Wood and his brother, this renowned crew chief, Leonard Wood. Pearson and Petty's first two-time, or one-time one first and second finish, I guess I should say, came on August 8, 1963 at Columbia, with Petty besting Pearson for that victory. And their final first and second place finish came on the road course at Riverside International Raceway on June 2nd, 1977, where Petty won his 184th of 200 career victories that day. When Pearson passed away at the age of 83 on November 12, 2018, Petty said, quote, I have always been asked who was my toughest competitor in my career. That answer was always David Pearson. Pearson and I raced together throughout our careers and battled each other for wins, most of the time finishing first and second to each other. It wasn't a rivalry, but more mutual respect. David is a Hall of Fame driver who made me better. He pushed me just as much as I pushed him on the track. We both became better for it, end quote. When Pearson was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2011, he praised his closest rival for making him a better driver. Quote, and I wanted to thank Richard Meddy too, Pearson said. He's probably the one that made me win as many as I did. I'd run hard because he made me run hard. Simply put, there's never been two better rivals in all of motorsports. And I absolutely love that. Outstanding work. Really, really good. I mean, you know, it's it's funny how, you know, you and I, and certainly all the listeners of this podcast, Lifetime and NASCAR, you know, we, we think we know a lot about history, and you always dig up some stuff we don't know. So I, I really appreciate that. And you know, um, did I? I don't know. Did I miss the the one two the totals? Did you get that at all or not? Well, actually, I, uh, there were sixty three times they finished first and second with Petty. Uh, actually, no, I believe it was Pearson actually getting thirty three of those and Petty winning thirty. 30, and, okay. uh, 33, 30. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it, it was just so many times they were together first and second. And, and, and I was the recipient of some of those victories. Uh, you know, when I would look up like so many of those fans back in the sixties and seventies, mm -hmm. and I got a little tired of it, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember as kids, we'd go out and play basketball. As I've said on the show many times, my dad would say Saturdays are yours after you mow the grass, you know, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and Sundays, uh, we would sometimes those races at the firecracker 400, they ended up being July 4th Saturday races. And we would be able to get those on the radio. You couldn't see too many of those on TV back in those days, but right. you did 
have a chance to start to see it or listen to them on the radio. And so we play basketball and, and so many of those things is we'd stop playing ball and it'd be Pearson and Petty, Pearson and Petty. <laughs> and uh, I tell you what, it was just so many of those great races, but I will, I do recall one race. Uh, it was actually on Thursday, I believe, but uh, it was one of those deals where again, Petty and Pearson Petty was out front and uh, for a few laps and then, and then Pearson got the lead. We're coming down to the, the white flag and Pearson was, had just taken the white flag on the final lap. This was July 4th, 1974. And he just let off the gas and Petty just about ran in the rear of him and, and had to go high. And everybody thought something was wrong with David's car. He was in the Wood Brothers Mercury that year. Of course, Petty was in the Petty Enterprises Dodge. And uh, I said, oh, what's wrong with, what's wrong with Pearson? He must've blown up. Well, what had happened was he didn't want to be out front and get, you know, uh, the slingshot move made by Petty. And so sure enough, he let up and he was about 50 yards or 50 car lengths, I should say, behind. And when they made their way down the back stretch, you can see, uh, you can see Pearson, you know, gain speed and he's got it, got it, got it back, got it back. Oh, here it comes again, you know, and as it turned out, uh, they got across the start finish line and uh, Pearson just barely made it back and ended up winning the race and it kind of made Richard mad a little bit because he let off the throttle so much, you know, after they took the white flag on that final lap and, uh, uh, oh my gosh, it, it got a little bit of con- controversy between Dale and, I think Dale Inman and Leonard Wood and, and Pearson and Petty a little bit, but you know, here's Pearson grinning from ear to ear in victory lane because he won the race, but yeah, so many of those races for right. sure. And, uh, that they were one and two. You know, the one thing I always have admired about uh, Richard Petty is he has never um, been afraid to give credit. And I remember the first time I ever asked him about, I could, I could tell you, the, I don't even know the date, but I know exactly where I was at and when I did it. It was back in 2004, and we were at Martinsville Speedway. We were up in the press box, and we were there for, uh, um, he was doing some kind of a promotion for uh, Goody's uh, Headache Powder. And so after he was done with his promotion, I got him on the side and I said, you know, uh, Richard, who is, you know, who was the toughest competitor you ever faced? Was it Earnhardt or, you know, I, I went through, I think three or four names and I never mentioned Pearson and he immediately stuck. He said, boy, whoa, 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 stop. He said, no, the toughest guy I've ever faced has been David Pearson. And I said, really? And I said, tell me why. And then he just went into this, you know, probably about two or three minutes of explaining it. And I learned so much in that conversation from Richard and that, you know, he always, even in adversity, he will always try to find the, the, the good. He'll always try to find something he can give credit to, you know, even if, if his team has had a bad day, he'll find something that, you know, they did good, you know, that kind of thing. And I've always admired that about him, but you know, the, the Pearson petty rivalry to me was probably one of the biggest and one of the best we've ever seen. I mean, certainly you can talk about, Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon, or you can talk about, you know, guys today, but you know, the, the one thing that I've noticed though, you know, especially the last 20 some years I've been covering NASCAR, Ben, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you're, if you feel the same way, we don't have those kind of rivalries anymore. And I, and I cannot figure out why, I mean, it, yeah, we may see, you know, uh, a Denny Hamlin or a Kyle Bush or Kevin Harvick, something like that may be really bitter about something that might've happened to them you know, courtesy of another driver, but we don't see a real big thing between any of those guys, you know, from week to week or, you know, carrying over. It's just like, 
okay, this race is over, you know, this happened to me or this happened to them. We go on. You know, I mean, they yeah. may remember, they may remember it because, you know, uh, drivers have memories like elephants. They may remember it and maybe may try to do something like, like when, uh, when uh, Matt Kenseth got into Joey Logano at Martinsville, I mean, that took care of Joey's uh, championship hopes for you because he was, pay, uh, Matt was paying him back because Joey got into him at, uh, at uh, Kansas a few weeks earlier. So, but I mean, why don't we have the rivalries today? Like we had back in the day. I mean, you know, you had, you had Petty and Pearson, you had, um, you know, uh, Junior Johnson, you had, uh, you know, uh, KLE Arborough, you had all kinds of guys and we just don't have it anymore. Why is that? I think part of it, Jerry, is the fact that I think it's so sponsor sensitive these days, really. I think uh, there's so much money on the line and and there's so much uh, social media out there. And there's so many ways that fans can can hit a button these days. And 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 suddenly, you know, maybe even as much as five, 10 minutes after something like that happens, it's on on social media or on the Internet. Back in those days, uh, you really didn't have that kind of ability to do it. And, and, in all honesty, um, I, I don't think there was talking about Petty and Pearson. It was a friendly rivalry. It wasn't a, a hateful, angry rivalry. The only time I remember things getting a little bit heated between the two of them was that day I was telling you about in 1974. And it really wasn't that heated. It was just that Richard just, uh, expressed his, uh, unhappiness at the way that it was handled by David. And I, they had some words about it and it went, they went on, but today it's so, uh, so sensitive. Uh, but I was part of something uh, a year or so ago about called renegades. that was on Fox and they talked about some of us, uh, media members covering some of these battles <laughs> between some of the drivers and uh looking back at some of those clips things got pretty heated you know on pit road and on uh on the racetrack and uh you're right though in the past year or two or three i guess we haven't really seen that much it kind of gets dissolved pretty quickly maybe because of the fines you know maybe that nascar puts out uh that might be some of the reason why we're not seeing it today but yeah, I think of all the rivalries um, that that we have seen in the 60s and 70s, I guess because the TV cameras weren't around too much, that's why you didn't see them too much. Right. But um, I never forget one. To me, it's funny. I guess for a lot of people, it's just not that funny, but I still laugh about it, is uh, the time that Curtis Turner and and Bobby Isaac had a problem at Martinsville and and Isaac put Curtis in the wall. And yeah, I remember Curtis was like the man in the sixties, aside from some, you know, David and and Richard and, and junior, but I mean, Curtis was considered like the, the guy you didn't really want to mess with. And, and Curtis and, and Isaac got in the wall at Martinsville and they Curtis comes back to Bobby's car and says, why'd you put me in the wall? I said, I, I didn't put you in the wall. I, I don't even know you. So I, mean, I guess you have to know people to put them in the wall. Is that the, the message? I didn't wreck you. I don't even know you. So I mean, I got a weird twisted sense of humor, but I just think that was really funny. I guess the, you have to know somebody to put them in the wall. I don't know. But anyway, it was just kind of, so to answer your question, I just don't, uh, I don't know if it's just too many, too much. Uh, the, maybe the sponsor says, don't get me in trouble. I don't want to be, I don't want bad press. I don't know. You, you did get some hot tempers at the end of seasons that, you know, when you see maybe Denny and Chase, I, I say the one rivalry night to me right now is Denny and Chase. I think they're, they're the two that's most likely to get in a little sideways. So. 
You know, I mean, and so, well, first of all, I want to say this going back about a minute or so, what you said. So you can only put your friends into the wall, not anybody you don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to know, I, you got to get to know me to to wreck me. That's right, to know me a, is to wreck me. That's right, yeah, there you go. I was going to say, there used to be a song, maybe. That's right, exactly. <laughs> to well, love you know, me is to know me or something like that. Well, you know, the thing is that um, I've asked, you know, I've talked to people that are drivers that have had um conflicts they're known for their conflicts i'm not going to get into their names because i don't want anybody mad at me but i think you know some of the people i'm already thinking of and when you ask them who are your rivals they can't answer that question i mean i I know i remember one situation very clearly it was down in atlanta probably five years ago i think it was and um i went up to a driver who is very well known has a very big sponsorship and um um, you know, I asked him, I said, what about, about rivalries? I mean, you know, who do you consider your chief rivals? And he just said, everybody that starts on that grade is my <laughs> rival. And, and, you know, and I, and I tried to press him even more and he kept on saying, no, every, it was, it was like that, um, uh, what was the name of that football player in Seattle? The one that said, uh, on media day for the Super Bowl, he says, I'm only here because I have to be here. Or I was told to be here. It's kind of like the way, the same thing that this driver was saying to me is that, I kept on pushing him, you know, asking him, you know, in different ways to ask the same question. Every single time was, he says, all my rivals are out there on the track. He said, I don't have any one in particular. And then mm-hmm. you, you make a good point about the, the sponsors because they're so image conscious about their brands. I get that. But at the same time, and maybe I'm looking at this from a, an old schooler, as my daughters like to say, my boomer outlook, that's what they always like to say. Um, <laughs> You know, I would think, I mean, I would think that if you're, if I'm a sponsor and I've got a big name driver and if he gets into it with somebody else, I really question how much my brand would suffer if there is a, I mean, if something really bad happened, okay, yeah, I can see that. Then no, I don't, I wouldn't want to see that. But I think that if, if you have like a uh, uh, a conflict or a rivalry, like you're saying, between let's say Denny Halen and Chase Elliott. Well, I mean, to, it's going to get fans talking, and that's what NASCAR wants to do. They want to get their fans talking. They want to get them to to do things, and I think that that will build their own respective fan bases. But more importantly, I'm going this kind of in a roundabout way. It is definitely going to help FedEx for Denny Hamlin. And it's going to help, you know, uh, all the different sponsors that, that Chase has on his car as well, too. So I, I I just really question that because, you know, a lot of these teams, they pay a lot of money to have like media consultants and, you know, uh, try to t- uh, teach these guys how to you know talk on, on in front of cameras or in front of microphones and that kind of thing. And they always say, you know, you don't want to t- put your sponsor down, don't want to sp- put down the sponsor of another driver and that kind of thing. I still think that if we saw more, um, what's the word I'm looking at? I don't want to say, uh, I'm not going to say honesty. Let's say, let's say transparency. If the drivers are more transparent about their feelings, I think it would be actually be a, a good thing for the sport. It would be a good thing for the, for the sponsors. What do you think? Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, here's my take on it. And this is talking from both sides of my mouth a little bit. And I apologize <laughs> for that. Okay. Right. So, so do you, Here's the. I, I hate to answer a question with a question, but I'm going to do that. Do you have a sledgehammer comp ABC sledgehammer 
on the back of your car, is that acceptable? Or do you have a well-known nationally, internationally known candy company on the back of your car? <laughs> and so which is more acceptable? Right, right, right. I mean, so who are, you know, where is your audience? I mean, it's such a fine line, really, because you don't want to put out the wrong image to the wrong, you know, age group. Right. I mean, it and the, and the circumstances are there too. I don't know. I, I I err on the side of caution always. If I'm the president and CEO of a company, I just rather I would rather see my driver in victory lane celebrating versus you know in the face of another driver telling him he's number one with a certain finger. <laughs> right. I, I just would rather not do that. I would rather just have a really happy-go-lucky attitude with a positive attitude. That's just me. And, um, but you know, something I'd like to point out about, I think that is so cool about the Petty Pearson, uh, rivalry friendship, even when, when David was not in the greatest of health, the very first people that would come to see him were the Petties. Right. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. They would just battle like crazy on the, on the racetrack, but the people who cared about him, now I won't say the most, but some of the people who cared about him greatly were the patties and every chance they got, they would go down and check on him, make sure he was okay. And each time they went through Spartanburg for any reason, if they could, they would see him. And mm-hmm. I just think that's, that's awesome to be that caring, but they had such, I mean, they had, well, they were rivalries, but they had fun, you right. know, and, and the, the good side of that rivalry was they, as I said, in the piece, they knew each other cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And they knew they, I mean, when Petty was racing against Pearson, he knew they, they had such a mutual respect. They knew they weren't going to do anything crazy other than the 1974 firecracker. 400. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that was the one time I think Petty was really nervous, you know, and, and even David said later on, he said he knew he messed up because he let off too much mm-hmm. and he didn't mean to let off that much. He, all he was trying to do is get Petty to go around him so he could slingshot back around him. And he realized immediately what happened. He, he let off too much. And, and what he did is he put David or Richard in a, in a tight spot. Cause you think about it when you're doing 200 miles an hour around Daytona, when you let up a little, I mean, that's fast. And you got a guy around your back bumper, you know, you got to compensate for what, not only what you're doing, but what he's doing, but, but the other thousand times they raced against one another, they they had some really good fun against. Because he knew what to expect. Richard right. knew what to expect from David. David knew what to expect from Richard. And and ironically, I mean, if you can think about all the thousands of times they raced against each other, it ended up being again those two cars against one another. That says a lot for the crew chiefs. Dale, Dale Inman on the Betty side, Leonard went on the other side, and those those guys also had immense respect for one another uh, as well, whether it be short tracks or whether it be on the super speedways. But it was just so much fun to watch because it was like a cat and mouse game. Every one of those super they, or super speedways, they did race uh, hard on, their, on the short tracks as well, yes. But so many times, like I said, you'd look up and, oh, oh here we go again. It was Petty and Pearson. <laughs> just a lot of fun to right, watch them right. race. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that... I mean, we obviously, you know, again, you and I are in the older group of, of uh, race fans, race media members, et cetera. Do you think that with the new fans that are coming into the sport, 
and particularly the new drivers who may not even be here yet. They may just be out. They may be in high school right now. We, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about that about them in maybe 10 years from now. Right. Do you think that because NASCAR is moving towards a newer, younger, um, more dynamic, more independent, um, um, you know, fan base, if you will, do you think that that fan base will eventually say we want to see more rivals, regardless of the fact that we have all these you know, sponsorships and the drivers have to be very careful about what they say? I mean, I mean, it, I would, I, I would feel great if five, ten years from now, a driver would come out and just talk like they used to talk back in the '60s and '70s. I mean, just come out and just you know let it all hang out. But you know, they don't want to. I mean, currently they don't want to say anything bad about their sponsors and God forbid, they're going to say anything bad about, you know, another driver's sponsor, because then it's going to come back on them anyhow. So, but do you think that with the new fan base we're getting that we may see some semblance of rivalry start to come back? Cause I mean, to be quite honest, I mean, I, I long for those days. I mean, you know, when, uh, going back over the last 10 years or so, I mean, guys like uh, a Kurt Busch or a Kevin Harvick or a Kyle Busch or a Denny Hamlin, uh, you know, they're natural rivals to themselves. Uh, but, you know, I would love to see one of them, you know, be be involved or be aligned or whatever word you want to use with somebody else that is equally as fiery, as equally as competitive, as equally as talented, because I just think it would make, make for more um conversation among racing fans i think that you'd be there'd be a lot of pre-race talk in other words like you know let's say um wednesday thursday friday before the weekend comes you know people are gonna be at the water cooler or what have you and they're gonna start talking about hey what are you doing this weekend oh i'm gonna go to darlington i'm gonna watch a race because i want to see kevin harvick and denny hamlin go at it again you know they're they're, they're great rivals you know that's that's mm-hmm. what i would like to see happen again I don't have a pro- I, I maybe I, maybe you're right. I don't have a problem with rivals if they don't get nasty. Yeah. You know, I don't I'm just not a big fan of nasty rivalries. What I enjoy watching about football is that if two teams can get on the field and have an inc- a, a really good competitive game and then hug each other and say, you know, enjoy the after party or enjoy the post uh, I start to say post race, post game. They're fine. I'm fine with it. You know, that's fine. And there's friendships on, on the field instead of being angry about it. Yeah. You know, I saw some games over Thanksgiving that I really enjoyed. One particularly was the NC state UNC game. It was a great game and it, it looked as though UNC had it won and the state came back and won. But to my knowledge, it wasn't a nasty after, after party, after you know, I'm see, I'm such a racer. I don't know what you call that, <laughs> but I mean, I enjoyed the game and I enjoyed the fact that it was a, 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 after the game, everybody got along fine. If people can get along great and have a, you know, not a fight afterward, you know, fine. I used to joke about when I'd race or I'd write articles, I'd say, well, there was a group over here that was drunk and a group over here that was fighting. And there was a third group that was drunk and fighting, you know, back in the fifties, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't want to see that, but I mean, I, I'd love rivalries if they can just have a friendly rivalry. And that's what I loved about some of these in the sixties, how they were friendly rivalries. Now some weren't obviously, you know, the old stories about how the guy, you know, they'd beaten bang for 300 miles. And then, you know, the, the gun, one guy had the crowbar the other one had the gun. And so what are you going to do with it? Or with that crowbar, I'm just looking for a place to put it. <laughs> You know, 
there's some, there's some really nasty stuff went on back in the yep, 50s yep, and early yep. 60s. Anyway, I, a friendly rivalry is fine with me. I'm just not built that way. I'm not I'm not out for the fight type stuff. That's just me. Now some people are. I'm that's just not who I am. So right, and no, I agree with you. You know, I think that as time will go on, I think we'll see certainly some new. I, I, I'm trying to find a different word other than a rivalry because yeah. the rivalries of today, tomorrow, down the road are going to be a lot different than, you know, the rivalries of, you know, in the sixties and seventies, even into the eighties. But I mean, I would love to see, you know, two guys, well, I mean, more than two guys, obviously, but I mean, there'd be like two guys in particular that I would just, even if I'm not a fan of either one of them or, or a fan of just only one of them that I want to see what's going to happen with them, you know, uh, dueling it out or duking it out, if you will, yeah. and the, each particular race. I mean, that's that's where you draw more fans. That's where you get more fans in the seats. That's where you get more fans in front of the TVs. If you have more rivalries, uh, yeah, I agree. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jerry. I think the problem that you have again is you've got eighty or hundred hours into or more building a machine that you work so hard on, and then somebody just tear goes yep. out there and tears the side of it off or something. Yep. I think that's where some of the anger comes from. And it's hard to compare racing to other sports, and it is because it's a totally different, two different animals. But you have so much hard work going into these machines, is what they are, and then you get out there and just rip them apart. And that I think that's where some of that anger comes from, is because these guys work so hard to get that done. Where in in other stick and ball sports, you're not investing so much of your time and energy building the court each mm-hmm. it's like that if you had to rebuild the court or the ball field every week and then go somewhere and just goes out there and maliciously tears the field up every week if you if you understand my comparison mm-hmm. right and that's the difference and you know these guys work really hard on these race cars and the drivers work really hard to drive them and it's it's, it's really not a good comparison but i mean that's where some of that anger comes from on on the track versus the field right yeah. well you know i mean the thing is like you know, and you're 100% spot on when you talk about, you know, uh, the teams themselves get angry if a car, if their car gets wrecked, you know, even if it's their driver that causes the wreck, they're still going to be angry because, well, they got to rebuild that car, you know, the, if you're either for the next race or what have you. But, you know, when when another driver, and um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name, he, he got into it with Kyle Busch earlier in the season, and then he actually... He got into it like three or two or three different other drivers uh, over the course of like four or five races afterwards. And I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but you know, uh, what was it? Kyle said something like uh, he doesn't belong out here or something like that. Yeah. I remember the instances. I just don't remember his name. Exactly. But the point is that I'm getting at is that, yeah, I understand that NASCAR doesn't want bad publicity, but who was it? PT Barnum, I think said that, any publicity is good publicity, you know? And <laughs> yeah. even, even if, even if you're, you, you have these two guys or one guy, you know, talking about how this other guy shouldn't be racing or, you know, if he cusses him out or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It may, it may not be good for the sponsors, especially like M&Ms for Kyle Bush. I mean, you don't want to see him, you know, cursing out another driver, that kind of thing because of kids and all that stuff. But at the same time, I can almost guarantee a lot of people turned in for the race the following week because they wanted to see if there was going to be another repeat. And it turns out that it, it wasn't a repeat with Kyle, but there was a repeat with somebody. You know, there was another incident with another driver. I mean, this uh, God, I'm drawing the blank, the blank on the guy's name, but he 
he was involved like in three or four incidents within like a four or five race stretch. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that we do have some underlying rivalries right now, but at the same time, these guys are so friendly with each other that, you know, uh, they're not, you know, they're not going to be like, well, here's, a, here's another good example. This is a perfect example. And yeah, I, th- I think you'll be able to appreciate this, Ben. You know, let's look back into like these, uh, particularly the 70s and the 80s, just in sports in general. I'm not just talking about NASCAR. I'm talking about all sports in general. What was the number one thing that a reporter would, more, most reporters were told by their sports editors? Don't talk to, don't fraternize with the competition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember um, it was a, a story. This is probably like uh, the early 90s, I think it was. But it was talking about how the Dallas Morning News and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and then there was also the Dallas, um, what was the name of the other Dallas newspaper that was still around at the time? They they, they had, the, the editors were so adamant about, you know, you can't fraternize, you can't be this. You, these are our rivals. These are our enemies. These are the guys we want to beat. And it kind of, that kind of carried over to all sports. You, you saw that a lot in baseball. You saw it a lot in football, basketball, hockey. You just don't see it anymore. And I think that from a sports fan's perspective, not just racing, but like I said, all yeah. sports, it's sad we don't have it anymore. It really is. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the whole time I've been in this sport, I have, I've had many friends on the media side that I've, we've kind of rely on each other, mm-hmm. I think, as far as, you know, for one, sometimes you get stories that come down the pike and you want to make sure you're accurate. Right. And, and we have, we sort of lean on each other for that reason to make sure that we're all telling, you know, I, I know that there's times that we, we were, like I said, we rely on one another in press boxes and media centers that, oh, are we telling this correctly? And mm-hmm. one that comes to mind is, of course, the death of Dale Earnhardt. And yep. when that happened and making sure we're all, on the same page and because that's the number one thing you don't want to do is put wrong information out mm-hmm. there. And, and we're so careful not to do that. I know I am. And even though 90, 90% of what I've written for, for a very long time has been feature material and history material. So I admire the guys out there uh, that do the hard news and, and the daily news. I really do admire them because it's, it's a, a, a whole different beat. Than, than what I do. And you, you do, you don't want to put information out there that's wrong and you don't want to jump the gun either. You don't yeah. want to put stuff out there because you want to be first accurate. is better than first. That's the way I, I've always been taught. And uh, so, yeah, you do, you do have to rely on one another. You don't want to be wrong. Exactly. You know, and it's funny you should bring that up because my wife and I, out of the clear blue, she brought his name up the other day. We were talking about him, the, the late great David Poole. And yeah. you know, he was kind of like the uh, the general in the media center. And, you know, uh, if, if people didn't have their facts right, he'd say, well, why are you doing that for? You know, you know, that's not right. We don't have it confirmed. But the, the best part of David Poole, though, what I used to love all the time. First time it scared the hell out of me when he did it. But I think you'll appreciate this. Remember when people would be talking and chip, you know, jibber jabbering and, and chatting and the voice would start, you know, the voice level would start getting louder and louder and louder. And then <laughs> Poole would look around. And he says, shut up <laughs> or be yeah. quiet or I'm working here. You know, yeah. I, yeah. I Tom to... Higgins used to do that. Also. Right. Right. And, right. 
because he would yell quiet. And uh, But here's a good example of what I'm talking about. I don't want to go into too much detail here, but I just know of a particular situation where a race driver uh, lost his life because of uh, a DUI situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a prominent newspaper. And again, I don't want to go too deep. But a prominent newspaper picked up the name of another driver they thought had a DUI, and they published it. Okay. And as and it turned out to be the spelling of the other driver was different than the driver they thought it was, and that was Oops. that didn't work out. Okay. And so the the they got into some serious trouble over that because they were trying to be first instead of accurate. And so it's, it's just that kind of thing happens. You got to slow down, make sure you know what you're talking about. So got to be careful. Well, you know, the one thing about media, especially over the last, I'd say over the last 15 years that I've noticed, and, you know, I've been doing this now for, I'll be, I'm actually going to celebrate 50 years in the media uh, in, well, let's see, in 70, no, I'm sorry, in 2025, it'll be 50 years. I started at the age of 15. So, I mean, I've been around, seen a lot. And mm-hmm. the one thing that that um, kind of surprises me is that everybody wants, you know, today they want clicks or they want to be first. And like you said, you know, the, the, you want to be accurate first. And that you, a lot of these people, they, they kind of throw that to the wind. And I just, I don't understand it because, you know, how many more people are you going to get reading your stuff if, you know, you're, you break the big story. Well, yeah, big story. Okay. I can understand. But I mean, if, if you're writing something about, let's say uh, uh, a big crash in the middle of a race. Okay. Well, you know, how many people are really going to be watching your Twitter feed that closely or after the race, you know, you, you want to put out a piece that's semi-controversial. How many people are really going to want to read that right away? I mean, they're not going to have the time. They may not be in the right position. They may not have a laptop in front of them, or they're, they're you know they can't really use their phone if they're driving things like that. It, you're right. You have to be accurate before you're first. And mm-hmm. I would much rather be second or third or fourth and know I have my facts right than somebody who goes off you know with um, you know with with uh, half baked information and then turns out that you know they may have to turn around and. and issue a correction you you and i know very well several people of our peers uh have done that in the last several yeah. years and yeah it's a it's a simple rule it takes 20 years to build a bridge and 20 seconds to burn it bingo exactly yeah, it really exactly. does and uh it's just too it's too hard to uh it's a lot easier to do it right and be accurate than than spend the next year trying to to apologize for it exactly but i do know sometimes that, that people try to do it uh, to hurry and do it wrong and i don't know it's it's just that we got to be careful what we write and and i've i've tried now I, believe me i've made my share of mistakes and uh i've said that before but uh yeah it's just you know, have to anytime you write something you just got to re- just remember that uh there are people you're writing about people so you got to be careful what you write well, that's know, why that's why i love doing features and history that's right exactly <laughs> history history's already been done so uh yeah you just got to make sure you but you still got to be accurate there too well i mean like like uh yesterday we're, we're taping this on monday but sunday um you know great senator uh bob dole passed away he was yep. 98 years old and he got a lot of plaudits you know a lot of great memories you know people 
you know, applauded him for the statesman he was because he was really a good statesman. He worked both sides of the aisle. He was able to get, you know, bring together a lot of people. Right. And for whatever reason, there were some members of the media, um, one guy in particular from the New York Times, I don't recall his name, but he put out a tweet. And the first thing he says is uh, Bob Dole, who, um, you know, became a Trump supporter and even said back in July that he's always going to be a Trumper passed away Sunday at the age of 98. Well, I mean, really, what's the relevance there? You know, I mean, that, and I don't want to get into a p- political, you know, diatribe or anything like that. But my point is that, you know, if you're going to write about somebody, write about who they are, what they did, as opposed to, well, you know, they they supported this person or they supported that person. That to me is poor journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why I love racing, because we don't have to... <laughs> I don't have to get into the political stuff too much. Oh, we do sometimes, but you know, but I mean, not yeah. political, political. I mean, but there are some politics, obviously, in racing too, as well. Oh so, yeah, but. that's true. All right, well, let's 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 move into our next step uh, segment of the show. This is one I really like. We always talk about this. Is the this is episode forty-two of a lifetime in NASCAR, and uh, you know Ben is always great. He's always spot on with numbers, and so. We're, you know, obviously the, the number of the week, if you will, is the 42. And Ben, you've got some great information. Tell us about the number 42. It's got a great history. Yeah, it sure does. Well, number 42, we've said this before, but I just think it's one of the coolest parts of the history of NASCAR. Of course, we're talking about the Petties today. Uh, Got to extend that just a little bit more. Uh, Lee Petty, the father of Richard Petty, of course, ran number 42 throughout his career. He had 54 victories. Uh, during his career, but a lot of people don't realize that 53 of those victories were in the number 42. Hmm. And one of those, yeah, one of those particular victories uh, slipped out of the basket. And it was actually in car number 43. And on April 5th of 1959, he drove car number 43 that day at North Wilkesboro Speedway. And ironically, Richard Petty was not in that race, which I was surprised but he was not. Might have just stayed home, might have had the flu. Not sure why he wasn't in that race, but uh, Lee Petty drove 43 that day to victory in the Gwen Staley uh, one. It was called the Gwen Staley 160. You know, we had 160 laps at North Wilkesboro, but Lee Petty drove 43 that day. But he had a total of 54 wins. And then you go back to some other drivers that uh, – carried the number 42 to victory, namely, and there's another Petty in the mix. That was uh, Kyle Petty, mm-hmm. who had six victories in the uh, number 42. And then Juan Pablo Montoya had a couple of those. Uh, let's see, who else did we have on that list, Jerry? Richard Petty had two in the 42. Or, I'm sorry, yeah, in the 42, that's right. And then how about our rain, our new champion, Kyle Larson, had uh, six wins in that one as well, yep. the 42. So. Uh, it's, you know, it's had. I'm, I'm going to do a quick math here. Let's see, 53 and 12 is uh, 65, 71, 72, 73, 75 wins for the for the number 42. Yeah. That's unofficial, but you know, I mean, uh, the one thing about the 42 that I've always wondered is that. Um, tell me, repeat. I know you've said this a couple of times, and I never really got the full gist of how this happened. So, so uh, um, Lee Petty. And I would assume Maurice was partly in this involved in this as well as Richard. They picked their car numbers just by license plates on somebody else's car they saw. Well, 
Well, actually, Lee did. He, he was on a, uh, on his license plate. He actually started running number 38 for some reason. Not sure why. I didn't have any success on 38. First time he ran that car number, he flipped the car at Charlotte Fairgrounds. Jeez. It was not, it was somebody else's car. So it's like, well, this is not working out really well for me. <laughs> so um, as time went on, he just, 42 was the last two numbers on the, on the license plate. So he said, okay, I'll pick that one. But ironically, I was thinking about this earlier today. When In the beginning of NASCAR, what you would do is you would take a car to a racetrack and you would license or, or sign in your car. Mm-hmm. And then NASCAR would, before the end of the weekend, you would basically be given a number by NASCAR because even today, NASCAR owns the numbers of these right. race cars, even to this very minute they own them. And so if you go back and look at footage, and I think you can find this on YouTube, you can go back and look at say the 1950 uh, Southern 500 and there's video uh, film, I should say, of cars practicing at Darlington. But if you look, there are no numbers on the cars. Hmm. And so that was before the final day leading up to, say, the 1950 Southern 500, which mm-hmm. was the first race at Darlington. So before the start of the race, of course, NASCAR issued the numbers. And so I just think that's fascinating because back, even on practice days, they take your regular passenger car from your driveway out to the racetrack and tape up the headlights and, and put oil in it, gas in it, you know, take your belt around from around your waist, tighten the doors, um, no roll bars to speak of, mm-hmm. you know, put a reinforced right front hub on the front. Cause that's where all your weight of the car was going to go into when you drove into the turns, very, very minor changes to the car and you race it. So as far as car numbers go, that you basically would take some white shoe polish or something to that effect. And you would just, you know, cause you had to get it back off after the race. If you right. had a car to take home and you have to convince your wife, yes, dear, I'm going to take the family car to the racetrack and race it for 500 miles and hope I had could bring it home with, you know, with no scratches. Right. There was a driver. Ironically, his name was his Frank Mundy was his name. He spelled his name M U N D Y. Mm-hmm. And he took a car from the local you rent it. It wasn't Hertz or, or Avis. It was called you rent it. And he rented the car and took it and entered it in the first Southern 500. Cause he didn't want to put his own car in the race. He wanted to go rent one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so smart move. So he took the car back and he didn't have any dents on the car, but the guy who he rented the car from, he said, man, the tires on the front tires in this thing are like bald. What is going on? They say, I don't know. This thing must have a really bad front end problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we're going to have to have our mechanics check this out. So you must, cause this thing's all over the place. <laughs> he never told him. I met him. He came to our, our uh, offices at NASCAR scene and illustrated in the early nineties. Very nice gentleman, very right. snappy dresser. Right. And um, he said, I, he told me that story firsthand. He said, the guy never asked me, what did you do to the car? He noticed he had 550 some miles on the car because he had to drive it from the place to the racetrack right. Right. and race it and then took it back to where he checked the car out. Mm-hmm. He wrote that down on his little clipboard. But he, had, he never asked him, what did you do to the car? He said, he said, this guy, this thing has got a really, really bad front end problem because look at the tires. <laughs> So that's a true story, but, but he had to take the, he had to take it to a 
car wash or whatever and get the white yeah, right, off exactly of it. right 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 so that's I'm talking about numbers so that that's where i led to that story but it, that's the way they would do it so the petties got stuck on the 40s 42 43 44 45 and 46 at times they ran 46 mm -hmm. so there's your little history of the 40s well they me, just uh, took sorry. them all yeah let, yeah. Me, let me ask you a question because this is something that's always i've i've asked a few people this in the past and they have never really come up with a really good answer. So I'm going to run this by you and see what your All thoughts right, are. Lay it on me. Okay, so NASCAR owns the numbers. I get that. And they, mm -hmm. in essence, for lack of a better word, they lease the numbers to the team owners for their particular cars. Mm -hmm. What I don't understand is, you know, with so many drivers moving from one team to another team, I mean, it's very rare you see one driver stay with one team for, you know, his entire career. Why does NASCAR just issue numbers to the new drivers in a, in the series and you know, let's say let's say start let's say next start in 2023 let's just say hypothetically and they issue numbers uh, that would normally go to the team owners they start issuing the drivers and then the driver as long as he remains active in the sport and in in that particular series he gets to keep that number because you know i've heard this uh, one of the biggest groups that I've heard this from, and I've heard this no, numerous times, diecast collectors. Oh, they hate it when a driver goes to another team because now they've got to go out and get another diecast with a different number, different sponsors, all that kind of thing. They just hate that, you know, if they're following, let's say, uh, uh, a Kurt Busch, for example, you know, then he, you know, he goes from one number with uh, Stuart Haas, then he goes to another number with, uh, with Chip Ganassi, and he gets another number with, um, uh, with uh, 23XL. I mean, people, they, I, I think fans, from what I've heard and talked to fans, they like to see drivers keep their numbers. Would that be a more equitable system, or do you feel that that's not an equitable system if the drivers were the ones that control the numbers as opposed to the team owners? No, I, I don't think so, because, uh, well, I mean, it's sort of a signature uh, move for, or if, well, I don't think NASCAR would ever give up the number for one thing because it's just they've always done it that way. Mm -hmm. Now that I've said that, they're sort of in a in an era right now where they want to change everything. Yeah, exactly. And but no, it's it's just something NASCAR has always held on to, and it's sort of a foundational situation with the teams having the number, even though they don't belong to the teams. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think it'll ever go to the to the driver because I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a real good answer for you. I just don't think they would do it. I think they, it's always been sort of attached to the team, even though they own the number, it's sort of a control situation, if you will. They, right. they always, even though it's a gentleman's agreement, you know, back when Dale Earnhardt uh, lost his life at Daytona, the number still was owned by NASCAR. Mm -hmm. But they, it was a gentleman's agreement with Richard that they would always let him have it because of the history of what right. Dale Earnhardt accomplished with the number. Right. Uh, I don't. I couldn't foresee them ever taking the number away, and I don't ever foresee them retiring numbers either. Honestly, yeah. don't. I think right. they'll hang on to numbers, and I don't think the forty-three, for instance, would ever be retired, even though officially retired. I don't think after. If Richard Petty were to, when he passes away, I honestly, I don't see another driver or team getting it. I mean, now, but, but that's something else we were going to talk about today, how 
you know, that the, the Richard Petty Motorsports technically has been moved over to another team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's complicated, like, but, but the number technically is still owned by NASCAR. And I think it's a control situation, to be well, honest you know, with you. Well, I mean, you know, when I when I look at like the young guns that come into the series, you know, they move their way up from trucks to Xfinity, Xfinity to Cup. You're pretty much gar- I don't, don't want to use the word guarantee, but you're pretty much assured, I think is probably a better way of phrasing it, that that young driver who has put in so much blood, sweat and tears uh, over the last previous years, you know, going from one rank to next rank up to the Cup Series, his his odds of success, I think, are pretty good. I mean, he may not be the best driver ever. He may never win a win a race at all. But the point is that he still, um, again, it's my opinion, he should have some kind of an identity factor with that number. Now, yeah, I get the point where, well, you know, the Petties have, you know, 42, oh, they don't have any more, but, you know, 43, 44, 45, they had those numbers. I think they still still have, uh, well, no, I guess not with the sale, they may not have that anymore. But the point is that, you know, a lot of drivers' identities are lost when they go to another team and have a different number. It takes a while for people to say, oh, yeah, that's uh, so-and-so in car number, you know, such and such. And I just, it's just the way I feel. I mean, I would love to see drivers have more control over those numbers. I understand why NASCAR does it. I totally get it. I mean, it makes sense. But I just think that, you know, when you have a driver who, excuse me, excuse me, if you have a driver who, you know, has a 20 year career in cup and he drives for five different teams and five different numbers, really, what is his identity as a cup driver? I mean, is it just his, the best year that he, you know, had was in this number so-and-so and there were other years were eh, dismal or so-so in the numbers, you know, such and such, such and such, such, such and such and such, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But you see the, the exception to that rule though, actually came about with Jeff Gordon and say Jimmy Johnson, because they just happened to stay with the same race team throughout their careers where, where other drivers were not that fortunate, but you know, Jeff, other than the time he held, uh, uh, L or filled in, I should say, apologize. I filled in for Dale jr. When he needed his help in the 88 car Mm -hmm. for eight races, uh, it was, he was in the 24 car, Jimmy Johnson, the same thing in the, in the 48 car, his entire career for Hendrick motorsports. Those were kind of exceptions because a lot right. of times drivers will plan on staying with the race team, their whole career, but then it just, for whatever reason, doesn't work out. The sponsor mm-hmm. goes away. The driver and the team owner don't see eye to eye anymore. The crew's chief doesn't see eye to eye. Other opportunities come along and sort of like, players and other sports that move to different teams. So, yeah, I mean, those were, I would honestly say exceptions to the rule, but, uh, but, you know, I, I, you know, when Jeff Gordon signed with, with Hendrick Motorsports, did he really think he was going to stay there the whole time? Maybe not. It just happened to work out that way. So, but nothing, nothing anymore is, is in, in stone like it used to be in NASCAR. I don't think really, I don't because, there are so many changes to the point it's hard to keep up with all the changes. Truthfully, exactly. exactly. And where are we going to go with this Gen Seven car? We don't know. I mean, everything is so 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 different than what it used to be. So we just have to, as my mom used to say, tie a knot and hang on. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, you know, we're we're coming up near the end of the yeah. show, but I wanted to get your thoughts about one thing, Ben. Um, 
the the sale of the majority ownership uh, was yeah. and actually uh, what's his name Andrew uh, Mierstein or whatever his last name is that he actually owned the majority of the Petty uh, Richard Petty uh, uh, Racing Richard Petty Motorsports rather um, yeah. that has now been switched over to GMS Racing they bought the you know controlling interest I think Richard Petty I, I believe is still going to have a, a very small share you know maybe six shares or whatever it is but the fact that it came without any advance notice. I mean, it shocked me when I heard that because, yeah, you know, me too. It, I mean, it, I would like to think that somehow they'll, if not for just the, you know, if, if only for those two cars, you know, they had charters with that, they would call it maybe, you know, uh, Gallagher, more, well, it's Maury Gallagher's name, but, you know, Gallagher, Maury, Petty, racing or something like that i mean like like we're seeing with um uh, roush fenway racing which has now become roush fenway keselowski racing which is a mouthful obviously uh gotta have that polish guy's name there that makes it a mouthful you know so but <laughs> um but i mean i i just we didn't know this thing was coming in that's what i think surprised me the most because yeah i think a lot of people figure well richard's gonna be around for a long long time he's gonna you know he's gonna be in his uh, he'll, maybe he'll hit 100 years old if, you know because he keeps himself in great health he's very you know, uh, very skinny. He's very uh, health conscious. He eats very well. You know, he's, he's or he watches what he eats and that kind of thing. It's just, it's, it's going to be hard to understand or hard to believe that when that 43 hits the track, you know, in February, that we're not going to call it Richard Petty Motorsports. I think, I mean, I, I, we haven't heard exactly what the name is going to be, but if it's not going to be Richard Petty Motorsports, that's going to be the first time since 19, what, 50, I think it is that will yeah. have a will not have a team that was owned by the uh, in some way shape or form by one of the petty. Uh, well, well, it would be smart to leave it Richard Petty Motorsports for no other reason. This name recognition. If right. you're going to go to New York or you're going to go anywhere to uh, to find sponsorship for the race team, everybody and their brother and grandmother knows who Richard Petty is, even if you don't know what NASCAR is. You've heard the name Richard Petty, so right. that would be a great marketing tool to leave him on board and call it Richard Petty Motorsports, where you might not know the name of the person who bought it. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a really smart move. Uh, yeah, but it was a shocker to me when I heard it. And and the question comes to my mind is, is, is racing, I mean, that it's got to be that expensive. I mean, when you see teams selling the charters the way they are and some teams not with us any longer like starcom and mm -hmm. i mean it's uh, what's really going on behind the scenes is my question um and maybe nothing but you just all of a sudden you see some of these teams merging and and the cost the cost of racing has got to be astronomical i guess because what's what's making this types of things happen is the gen 7 car that's supposed to be less expensive maybe down the road is it more expensive than we think it's just there's just questions i don't know um i'm really excited about the fact that i don't own a race team <laughs> because uh, i just think it's it must be really really expensive to own one but yeah i mean there's it's sad in a way but i mean we're going to see a time in my lifetime that there may not be a richard petty or a richard petty motorsports and, you know, Bobby Allison's no longer got a team, hasn't had for many years. Kale Yarbrough doesn't. David Pierce is no longer with us. I mean, it's hard for me in closing. It's hard for me 
to to see some of my heroes no longer in the sport and haven't been for many years. It's a brand new sport, brand new era, brand new brand new NASCAR, and I'm trying to embrace what we have. and And it's a brand new world. So let's see let's see how it is. But yeah, I miss my heroes, and and this is the last last line of the last page of the song with Richard Petty, really, because, but he's still with us and I'm hoping they'll call it Richard Petty Motorsports. It'd be a great marketing tool for them to keep it, to call it Richard Petty Motorsports, even though his role is minimal, it'd be, they'd be crazy not to keep the name. I agree with you. I mean, you know, when I, when I heard the news, uh, first it was the shock, but almost immediately after I got over the shock, the, the first thing I thought of was, okay, well, if, they do take away the name Richard Petty Motorsports and they change it to, you know, is it GMS Racing or whatever it's going to be? That leaves only one team that ha- has a link with us all the way back to the beginning of NASCAR, and that's the Wood Brothers. Now, if the Wood yeah. Brothers ever sell to their organization to another, um, you know, another buyer, a sponsor, what have you. Will that name be changed? I mean, it's well, just, it saddens me. It really does. You know, in all honesty, Jerry, I mean that that team is really a third wheel in Team Penske. Yeah, that's true. So that's true. yeah, so I mean that. Hopefully, Roger Penske will keep it Wood Brothers Racing and forever and ever. I mean, you're right. It's the Wood Brothers and and Petty Motorsports, and and that's not even Petty Enterprises anymore. And that's that's been shuttered for many years. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the last two real, and isn't that ironic? That's the very two teams we talked about the end, through the entire show right. are the last two that are still here. And so in one, one shape, form, or another, uh, even though it's not Petty Enterprise, it's still Richard Petty and the Wood Brothers. So interesting that that's the last two that are here. But it's a brand-new day, brand-new NASCAR, so we'll see where the future takes us. Well, you know, the one thing about the name, and I know we're, we're coming up on our, the deadline for the show here, but I want to add this one quick thing. Yeah, sure. One, one thing that, that um, you know, I was thinking about is, yeah, I get that new buyers want to have their own identity. For example, here in Chicago, we have the Sears Tower. Well, um, you know, the Willis, whatever they are, Willis Company or whatever, they bought it probably, what, 10 years ago or whatever. And they change it to the Willis Tower. And unless you're like super young or you've been exposed to Willis, almost everybody I know, people that are even coming in from out of town. And a good example is my daughter's fiance came into town with her a couple of weeks ago. First thing he says, I want to go see the Sears Tower. Not the Willis Tower, it's the Sears Tower. And that's kind of the same thing with, with Petty. I mean, here's another example. Perfect. This is a, a, a motorsports example. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost, as we said in the last show, previous show a couple well last week we lost one of the big icons of motorsports in bob bondurant now bob yeah. started his racing uh, school back in i think it was like 66 or something like that and you know it was iconic it was legacy you know and they you know the first day they started in uh, sonoma at sonoma raceway then they moved it down to uh, chandler arizona which is where they've been for the last 30 some years i guess it is but you know bob knew that his health condition was getting worse and he wanted to make sure that his company was going to be in good hands. But I don't know if, if he knew it or if it was agreed upon, but it's no longer called the Bondurant School of Racing. I, I can't even remember the name, but the new name of the owners. But, you know, when you look up Bondurant Racing, you'll see the name still out there. But 
you're going to be directed to a new website that, that has somebody entire, somebody's name entirely different. That, mm-hmm. that, that just, it seems like it takes away well, that link to the, you know, that, the past. That's the beauty of museums. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's why I love museums. That's the way, that's where we, that's when you go and pay your $20 and go and relive the great things about NASCAR, the NASCAR hall of fame and NASCAR, the NMPA museum. Mm-hmm. And, because that's that's what we have to do. We just have to keep the history rich and and not let it go away. Because there's a lot of great history, and that's what our lifetime of NASCAR is all about: is to keep talking the history. That's right. And one final thing we want to talk about is the driver of the week, and we're yeah. going to keep it along the petty theme. Who's the driver of the week this week, man? The driver of the week is going to surprise some folks, and you wouldn't believe it. But there was a driver, another driver, Maurice Petty. He was a renowned NASCAR Hall of Fame. Uh, engine builder but he actually started 26 nascar races tried his hand as a driver and finally uh, after race number 26 he said boys it's my job to build engines i just don't (laughs) want to be a driver but he had a great career because he had seven top five 16 top tens uh his average start was 11.8 his average finish was 10.8 and i mean he only had eight dnfs out of those uh 26 you know like transmission issues and maybe an engine or two but i mean he did really well to be a driver but and they were all on short tracks all those right, 26 right. but he he did well but i think he finally went to papa lee and brother richard and just said you know what my job is to build engines and man could he build engines because i've heard white l wilson say they'd show up at places like daytona and talladega and everybody else in the garage just wanted to put tarps over their cars and say, <laughs> you know, there's no way we can compete, compete with the sound of that because they, they could build some Hemi engines. Uh, and they just were so, he was so good at as an engine builder. And of course, uh, built winners for, well, 200 races are right out. And, uh, man was, and he was so talented too. And, and just a tremendous, he didn't say about a lot, but he, he let the engines on the track do his talking and they sure did. Great guy, Maurice Petty. Exactly. Kind of like Richard. I mean, Richard's a little bit more um, vocal, but still in the same in the same vein, though. He is kind of um, kind of quiet, kind of shy, if you will. I mean, Richard. Yeah. Richard obviously knows the game, how you know how to talk to the media and everything. But if you if you talk to Richard away from an actual interview uh, thing, he really lets his hair down. I mean, I, right. I remember probably about I don't know maybe 10, 12 years ago, we were at Martinsville and. Um, I was to interview him for a story. So we went, I went up in his bus and we were talking and I said, you know, that's it. Thanks very much for the interview. And we, then he just said, no, stick around for a little bit. We start, and he just starts, you know, talking like a regular guy to even took his hat off, which really surprised me. I say, yeah, I've never seen Richard without his hat on, you know, and, and yeah. the hat off. And, and we had just a great conversation, just, you know, it wasn't so much about racing. It was just about everything in life. And mm-hmm. there was something going on at that time. And I I'm, I'm drawing a total blank. I know it was, it's something to do with, with um, um, uh, Richmond. I remember that, but you know, he just, it was great to talk to him, not about racing, but just about everything yeah. else. He's well, really an intelligent guy. Very intelligent. He really is. And, and very quickly, Jerry, one of the coolest things Richard told me was we found out that he and I, uh, we went to a Methodist church at one time and, and we shared the same minister mm-hmm. years apart. 
but I asked him, I, I described him. I said, you know, he had gray hair and he was about six, two and oh yeah, that was minister. He was our pastor also. And he was minister. So-and-so was like, how do you remember that? That was like 25 years ago. Oh, I still remember him. And so we had the same minister and I couldn't remember the guy's name. And he, he was just like, he's very down to earth away from all the seven time champion and all that stuff. And I agree with you. He's so, so much fun to talk to about things away from racing, but talking about Maurice and Richard, they had a thousand two hundred and ten total starts as drivers. So if you want to, it's one of those bar things. If you want to get somebody, you know, who was the greatest driver, brother drivers in NASCAR, you could get them on that one and say Richard and Maurice. <laughs> you're, not, most, you're not, you're not going to say the Bush brothers or something like that. No, it's the most <laughs> successful drivers team, team right. effort would be Maurice and Richard. And they, a lot of people don't realize Maurice had 26 starts. So there you go. You could win another bar bet. Exactly. If, yeah. So there you go. We should we just change the name of the show to uh, a lifetime in bar betting. You're saying, <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'm, I'm out of material for the week. So but okay, me too. As usual, Wait, enemy, great. Tip your show. waiters and waitresses. So What's that? Sorry, what? Tip your waiters and waitresses. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to let you go with um, another great show as always yes. in the can. That's episode number 42, and I can't wait for next week. That's episode 43. And oh, yeah. there's we're the guy fun with that one. Yeah, remember Richard Petty? You heard that guy? You know, he's the one that drove that car. So we're going to have a fun time next week uh, in the life of the NASCAR. We had a great show this week as well, too. So everyone, thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you next week on the Life of the NASCAR podcast. Take care, everyone. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.